Hi, all. Thanks so much for joining Speaking Out of Making Healthcare Work for You, Different Perspectives and Empowering Solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoorv Gupta, and today we are joined by Dr. Sanjeev Chopra, who is the, a professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School, Marshall Wolf Ma Master Clinician Educator at Brigham and Women's Hospital, co-director of CME Division at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Thank you so much for being here. I'm delighted to be with you and share some reflections. I'm really excited about this because when we were doing our prep call, which usually is, you know, 20 or 25 minutes, we had a few minutes and then we were like, whoa, there's so much to talk about. We better start. So with that, we are going to start because you were talking about the two most important days of your life. What are they? Tell us. Yeah, so actually that's the title of my most recent book with a friend and colleague, Gina Will, The Two Most Important Days, How to Find Your Purpose and Live a Happy and Healthier Life. So it's a wonderful quote by Mark Twain, who once famously said, the two most important days in your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why. Each one of us has a singular purpose in life. I maintain that the happiest people on this planet have four things in common. The first is they have a cadre of good friends. Your friends are your chosen family. A friend is a gift that you give to yourself. Robert Louis Stevenson. Friendship is a sweet responsibility, never an opportunity. Khalil Gibran. The second is the ability to forgive. Anyone listening, if you're holding a grudge, my plea to you, get rid of it. And the moment you make the decision to get rid of that, you will feel this enormous weight come off your shoulders. Look at Nelson Mandela, 27 years in prison. And when he's released, he's asked the question, Mr. Mandela, do you have a resentment against your captors? And he gave the most eloquent answer. He said, I have no bitterness. I have no resentment. Resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemies. It'll kill you. So friends, forgiveness. The third is a wonderful quote by Albert Schweitzer, physician, theologian, humanitarian, Nobel laureate, who once said, I don't know what your destiny will be, but one thing I'm certain of, the ones amongst you who will be truly happy are those who have sought and found how to serve. Look at those of us in healthcare, right? What a privilege to be serving our fellow brothers and sisters and, and waking up in the middle of the night, going to the ICU, doing an emergent endoscopy and so on. So I've distilled it into three Fs, friends, forgiveness, and for others. But there's a fourth one and it begins with G. And it's not God, it's gratitude. But happiness is more than the sum total of happy moments. And in order for us to have sustained happiness, we have to find our purpose in life and live it. What is yours? What did you determine? So I, you know, this is very interesting, Stephanie. I was asked this question by a, a great friend and colleague. He's uh, very spiritual. And one day, about 15 years ago, we we're having coffee. And he says, Sanjay, you've written these books. You got these awards. I said, Adrian, where is this conversation going? He said, what's your purpose in life? So I came back, I sat on the deck outside my home. My wife was in New York with the grandkids and I wrote down my purpose, which I'll share with you now. And everything I do now has to be aligned to my purpose. Otherwise, no matter how much fortune or fame 
It's a distraction. It's a detour. So my purpose in life is to fulfill my dharma. Dharma is a Sanskrit word which incorporates moral compass, authenticity, truth, vocation. So my purpose in life is to fulfill my dharma, to teach medicine, to teach about leadership, about happiness, living with purpose, to do it grounded in humility, with an ardent desire to learn every single day, to celebrate with gratitude my family, my friends, my colleagues, my students, and my patients who inspire me in countless ways and in some small measure inspire everyone that I meet on this amazing life journey. Wow, Dr. Chopra, thank you again for the continued inspiration. As I was telling you, Stephanie, uh, you've, you've been a mentor to me for so many years and I'm so grateful. Uh, speaking of gratitude, let me make sure I express that to you here today. Oh, you're so kind. So, so grateful for, for 25 plus years of uh, mentorship. Yeah, so um, you know, Apoor, earlier you were mentioning about your uh, son who may go into medicine? Uh, my daughter, actually. Your daughter. She's in eighth grade. But she's yeah, so yeah, I have three kids and I have two granddaughters. And uh, what I learned from my granddaughters is just amazing. And the younger one is now 15. When she was eight, they come from New York. We're about to have dinner in our home in Western. And she says, Nana, which means maternal grandfather, before we have dinner, we're going to play a quick game. It's all about gratitude. I said, wow. What's it called? She said, it's called thorns, buds, and roses. So I said, Mira, I don't understand. She said, I'll explain. My thorn for today is my cousin was coming for a play date, but her father got busy and couldn't bring her. My bud is she's coming tomorrow. And my roses are, you took us this morning for breakfast. Then you took me to Barnes and Nobles. You bought me three books. And Nana, after dinner, you're going to tell some stories. You're a pretty good storyteller. So you start with the negative, you start with something hopeful, and then you notice that there were three times as many roses as the thorn. There's an amazing ratio called Losada ratio, which says that negativity is very heavily weighted. And if I say something negative to you, Apur, I now have to say three positive things to neutralize it. And I'm told if I say something negative to my wife, I have to say six positive things Absolutely. to neutralize it. That's so this actually, is a game you can play around the dining table at dinner with your family. And you start with the youngest and you go around. In two minutes, it finishes and everyone is expressing gratitude and feeling so positive and upbeat. Wonderful, wonderful, so wonderful. And, and, and I was thinking about your opening comments, Dr. Chopra, and you were talking about uh, the, the three apps, for friends, forgiveness, for and, and gratitude, which and we just gratitude, talked about. Yeah. And I was wondering, you know, you've had such a long, illustrious, uh, incredible career. I mean, the pinnacle of, of what we all dream of uh, in, in healthcare. Uh, and you've seen healthcare go through so many changes. So do you think that that somehow some of these elements are somehow missing in healthcare now, especially given how much uh, burnout there is that we're seeing? Uh, you know, yeah, yeah I, I, I totally agree with you. I, I, I don't even like to call it burnout. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, maybe terms like moral injury, system-induced distress, are more appropriate. When you say burnout, or I say burnout, it almost implies, okay, 60% of gastroenterologists are burned out. 
What's wrong with them? How come 40% are, are not burnt out? So I think we, we need to clearly address it and we need to address the system, which is you know, very flawed. I have an analogy that busy clinicians, it's like they're on a treadmill and the administrator comes and cranks up the incline and the speed. The EKG leads fall off, says, keep going. You know, they want you to see more patients. They want you to see faster patients. They want you to see patients on weekends, etc. So part of the lesion is in the system. But how do we make ourselves more resolute? And I think if you're happy, right? If there's darkness in this room, I can't say darkness, go out, go out, go out, open the window. All I have to do is flick a light switch. So we, if we find joy and meaning in our work, then we will not have burnout, right? If you think about your own profession and, and the way it's evolved, or any of us going into medicine, nursing, public health, initially it's a job, then maybe it's a career. And then if we are lucky, it's a calling, right? Then, then, you know, people ask me, what's your favorite day of the week? And they're very surprised when I say two times. They go, two? I said, yeah, Friday evening and Monday morning. I look forward to going to work. I love my work. Work is worship. So if we can find joy and meaning in our work, if we can be happy, if we can be fulfilled, if we can have a purpose in life, there will be no burnout. One, one of the things, of course, you know this better than I do, exercise. If you're vitamin D deficient, or even if you're not, I recommend taking vitamin D. And then meditation. I wrote a book called The Big Five. And in it, um, there are five things. And I had about 30, 35 interviews. And some were 10 minutes, some were 30 minutes. And whoever the moderator was, I said, please, even though there are only five things, give me half a minute at the end to summarize so people will remember. And they all did that. So I said, okay, here's the deal. On a good sunny day, go for a brisk walk to your favorite Java shop. So now you got the vitamin D, you got the exercise, and you got the coffee. Three things, you live longer. Coffee drinkers have lower risk of seven common cancers, low risk of Alzheimer's, Parkinsonism, diabetes, gout, death from suicide, cirrhosis. And now five studies published in Annals, New England Journal of Medicine, Lancet, people who drink coffee, men and women, have low total and cause-specific mortality. You've heard of telomeres. Elizabeth Blackburn with two other colleagues in 2009 got the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for her work on telomeres and telomerase. So shortened telomeres are linked with accelerated cellular aging. Who is shortened telomeres? Mothers of chronically severely disabled children, stress day in day out, caregivers of people with Alzheimer's. Who has longer telomeres? People who exercise, people on the Mediterranean diet, people who meditate, and amazingly, people who drink coffee. And here's the study. Increased caffeine intake is linked with shortened telomeres. 
increased coffee intake is linked with longer telomeres. So if you have Red Bull every day, a lot of caffeine, you're not going to live long. It's not the caffeine. Coffee has a thousand constituents. So anyway, coffee, exercise, vitamin D. The fourth is nuts. Study in the New England Journal of Medicine. If you eat a small amount of nuts every day, and when you read the study, it says even people who were overweight and didn't exercise had low mortality. All the nuts, pistachios, walnuts, almonds, even peanuts. Two studies now. It's not a nut, it's a legume. You live longer. So I said, on a good sunny day, go for a brisk walk to your favorite coffee shop. Don't go nuts remembering this. <laughs> That's the fourth one. And before you go, meditate. That's the fifth one. And there's an ancient saying, you should meditate once a day. And if you don't have time to do that, you should meditate twice a day. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone remembered it. They'd meet me six months later. Sanjeev, five things. So those are five things we can do based on scientific evidence to actually live longer. Okay, so wait, what's the science on the coffee? Because like, I don't know if this counts. Yeah, it counts. So, so like the milk on the sugar? Okay, okay. so here's, I, I used to get asked this question. All right. See what I got? Coffee with Dr. Chopra. <laughs> I, I did a show on this. Multiple shows. Anyway. We have a virtual I, cheers I, here, guys. <laughs> so I would get asked, uh, how, how should I drink my coffee? And I would say the research hasn't been done. I drink it black. The only thing I recommend for you, if you want to put sugar or a little bit of milk, go ahead. Do not put artificial sweeteners. Artificial sweeteners change the gut microbiome and make things worse. Diet Coke will increase the risk, it's been published, the risk of stroke, especially in women, threefold. The worst thing we can do is use these dry drinks. What if about that, like agave? Does that, is that real? That's not, like, what been, that's not been studied. Hmm. But you know, the moment you stop putting sugar, within two weeks, you won't miss it. In fact, if somebody accidentally puts sugar, you'll say, I can't drink it. It's too syrupy. I gave it up in 1988. I used to put two spoons of sugar in my tea and coffee, now zero. So um, this study came out in the Annals of Internal Medicine. It was from 10 European countries where they make their coffee differently, they drink their coffee differently, lower total and cause-specific mortality. All of them. In the same Annals of Internal Medicine, there was a study from Hawaii. So it looked at Caucasian population, African-Americans, um, Hispanic population, Asian-Americans. It didn't matter what your ethnicity was. You drink coffee, you live longer. Regular coffee is more beneficial than decaf. But here's an amazing, but decaf also has lots of benefits. And the most amazing recent study because I talk about it, write about it, now all my colleagues. So Apurville know Dr. Lowell Schnipper, used to be our chief of hematology, oncology, tenured professor, brilliant. He's a good friend of mine. He sent me an article about two months ago. Essentially, you've probably seen this, but look at it. JAMA Oncology. People with advanced colon cancer. Metastatic. So they have colon cancer and it's out of the barn. It's in the liver, in the bones maybe lungs, who drink coffee, 
have improved disease-free survival. What? And it was seen with regular and decaf, and it was dose-dependent. In other words, two cups a day was better than one, three better than two. I recommend two to four cups a day. My regular. mom will be very happy to hear this. Yeah. And you know, Voltaire, the French philosopher, was known for his amazing statements. He once said, every man is guilty of all the good he did not do. Right? If you have a talent or a skill, you must share it. He said, cherish those who seek the truth, but beware of those who find it. <laughs> now, Voltaire lived at a time when life expectancy was in the 40s. He lived to the age of 83 years. And it's not proof that he lived that long because he drank a lot of coffee. But you will never guess how many cups of coffee he drank in a day. Take a guess, Stephanie. 11. Apurv, go higher. I was gonna, well, I was gonna say eight, but I'll go 16. <laughs> 50 to 72 cups 50. of coffee. Did this man have a catheter? Because that doesn't even sound yeah, I know. an early version of depend. And, and, and when I mentioned this during my liver talks, somebody will raise their hand, Anaheim 7,000 clinicians, and say, Dr. Chopra, what size? And I go, how's that important? Even if it's this much, 50 adds up to a lot. Yeah. It's the number one beverage consumed in the world right now. 2.25 billion cups of coffee are consumed every day. Coca-Cola has seen the writing on the wall, they bought Costa, which is a chain of coffee shops in all the European airports, about a year ago for $5.2 billion. Pepsi is coming out with a coffee-infused drink. So I think coffee and water, two best drinks. I need to get you, my friend, I, we were just at our kids' soccer game the other day, and she had a shirt that her mom got her that said, coffee, my hottest friend, which I thought was hilarious. But that covers <laughs> the coffee importance and the friends that you yeah, said. Now I have an, and I have another thing. I've written a book on coffee called Coffee, the Magical Elixir, Facts That Will Astound and Perk You Up, uh <laughs> which was suggested by my daughter, the subtitle. And I have quotes. I have all the things, you know, different kinds of coffee, all the research. And then I was saying, you know, you've heard the term BC and AD, right? Before Christ, Anadomini. No, no, no. You know what it stands for? BC stands for before coffee. AD stands for after double espresso. <laughs> Excellent. Well, let's switch to not what you're consuming, but what you're doing mentally to meditation. Now, I believe in the benefits of meditation. I feel like I should do it, yet I, uh, and I suggest it to my husband often, and we never do it. But like, how do you, it's so hard to believe sometimes, like how you could think or how you could do something or not think in the case of meditation. Yeah. They can actually yeah. improve health benefits. How does this work? So, so the way it works is there are many different kinds of meditation. I think one of the easiest is called TM, Transcendental Meditation. Transcend means to go beyond. The way to learn it is not from an app, not from a book. You can re read a book. There's a wonderful book called Strength in Stillness by Rob Roth. He has taught meditation to all the stars, but more importantly for me, he has taught it to veterans with PTSD, he's taught it to homeless people, he's taught it to addicts, been doing it for 45 years. 
this guy is in bliss. It's an amazing teacher, strength and stillness. And you can read a lot about it and the research and everything and anecdotes, storytelling by famous people. But the way to learn it, Stephanie, if I was going to learn to play golf, I'd go see a golf instructor, right? If you're gonna learn the piano, learn from a teacher. So you can look up the yellow pages or Google and you'll find a teacher in the area. And once people learn TM, I learned it 40 years ago and I do it twice a day, once in the morning. And even though the experience is very blissful, the reason for doing it is to accrue the benefits and activity. And then I do it at four o'clock, three o'clock, 4.30 in the afternoon. And it's like the whole day opens up again. So <clears throat> it's, it's very simple. It's a mantra based. Mantra is a monosyllable in Sanskrit. It's not a religion. I know rabbis and Malvis and Hindu priests and you know all kinds of Catholic priests. And when they've learned meditation, they have a greater appreciation of their own religion, their own spirituality. So it's very powerful. The one regret most people have when they learn meditation, oh, I'd heard about it all these years. I should have learned it earlier. Uh, there's a wonderful saying, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. So you have to be ready. Your husband has to be ready. The moment my wife learned it, my brother learned it, I was a holdout for a month, then I learned it. And then the first reaction is we got to get the kids to learn it, children technique. We should talk to our friends. We talked to our friends and some of them went the next week and learned. And their other friends I've known for 40 years, they still haven't learned. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the student is ready. The teacher will appear. I was just saying, and here you are, you know, you're here to teach us. And so maybe that's a sign for us and maybe some of our audience members that, uh, that we're ready. It's, is it the ever elusive, we just don't have time? You know, and you said, hey, if you don't have time. Uh, don't have time, you should do it twice a day because yes. uh, we have time. We have time. And you will be so efficient. You'll be so much more creative. You will sleep better that the quality of your life will change in such an amazing way. You know, I, I, I don't want to boast, but when I'm giving my talks, I'm, I think I'm in a, I feel I'm in a zone and I'm, I scan the audience on the left, in the middle, on the right, and I'm saying something, I see somebody, you know, 50 rows away and she's, she's got a quizzical look and I can say, uh, maybe I wasn't that clear. Let me rephrase what I just said. All that comes from meditation. I don't have to look at my notes. You know, my golf is pretty good. And I ascribe it to meditation. My interpersonal relationships, my friendships, <laughs> everything. Upper, very simple analogy. There's a beautiful tree and on the top and branches, the leaves are drying up and dying. We don't take a water hose and fertilizer and spray it on the leaf. Water the root gain the fruit, your whole life opens up. Mm -hmm. At the root, do you think that ultimately there's something about the mind that's causing all of the, of the challenges? And is that what you're calming down? Oh yeah, I think, I think, you know, we're anxious, we're concerned, we worry about stuff that will never come to pass. And by meditating, you get anchored, you're grounded. 
you find silence no matter how chaotic things are. And here's the other analogy that I think is very, very important. Because I meditate and I've been meditating for 40 years doesn't mean I'm way up there. The analogy is it's an elevator. The elevator goes from the basement to the 100th floor. I may have hopped on on the 20th floor. You may already be on the 60th floor. Stephanie may be on the 62nd floor. I'm on the first floor because I'm afraid of elevators. <laughs> but when you learn, you will ascend. You are unfolding your own potential. You know, there's a guy in, uh, <clears throat> in Hollywood, David Lynch. And he has started a foundation called the David Lynch Foundation. He's a longtime meditator. He credits all his success. There's uh, one of the, Ray Dolio, one of the top hedge fund guys worth billions, credits all his success to meditation. Joe Namath, when he made that Hail Mary Pass, you know, ascribes it to PM, meditation. So it's very, very powerful. You're just unfolding your own potential. So this guy, David Lynch, has a foundation raising $2 billion. The goal is to actually teach meditation to young kids in school. You know, what do we do? We tell them, go sit on a corner, punish them? No, no, no. Quiet time. You know, just quiet time. The whole class can meditate for two minutes, five minutes. Very simple thing if you're feeling stressed, which was taught to me by my then seven-year-old granddaughter. She says, Nana, my teacher has a master's in mindfulness. I said, what? This is New York City, right? Even nine years ago. And we do five things every day, the whole class. So one, we have, we have uh, these mandalas and we take crayons and we color them. So I said, Mira, you were coloring when you were three years of age. She said, no, no, no. We have to do it in silence. Number two, we pretend we're walking a tightrope, one foot over another. Number three, we have these glitters and we shake it and the glitters settle and then some go up, settle. That's how our thoughts settle when we are mindful. I said, wow. She said, number four, we have a gong and we strike it. And then the sound fades. That's how our thoughts settle when we are mindful. And then there was a fifth one, which I've forgotten. <laughs> but anyway, can you imagine in school, the whole class, it takes two or three minutes. They're teaching these kids every day. How does that lead to exceptional performance, though? How does just clearing your mind lead to your ability to excel? It will happen during activity. In fact, we were told when you, if you get some brilliant ideas during your meditation, thought, don't come out of it and write it. If it's important, it'll come back to you during your waking state. But you become more creative. You are more energized. You sleep better. All of those things happen automatically. Yeah. You're not resisting, uh, basically, right? You're not overcome by all the negative tendencies of the mind and the negative thoughts. So, no, so when, when, you, when you learn, you're told. Yes. Suppose I'm meditating and I get a thought, oh, my left knee is hurting and I need a total knee. All right. 
I'm instructed how to come back to my mantra. You don't try to push that thought aside. You simply come back to your mantra and then you transcend. And when you transcend, there is no thought. There is no mantra. It's the state of least entropy. You know who relates a lot to all of these things are quantum physicists because they can relate from their discipline to all of this in meditation. It's 5,000 years old, but the science is catching up now. So longer telomeres in meditators, meditators, Elizabeth Blackburn, Nobel laureate. So why isn't this something that people work with patients on, you know, who are going through oncology treatment? Oh yeah, they should. Actually, a lot of oncologists at the BI um, and a lot of the faculty have learned meditation and they've learned it from my wife, who's a pediatrician. And 10 years ago, uh, she retired. I said, you got to spend more time when I travel with our grandchildren in New York. And she wanted to become a teacher of meditation. So she learned for six months. And now she's taught more than a thousand people. She teaches at her home on a Thursday introductory lecture, Saturday, one-on-one -on -one instruction, Sunday group check, Monday evening group check, Tuesday evening group check. She doesn't charge a penny. And about five years ago, I said, I'm very glad you don't charge. This is your karma. You're so radiant and fulfilled when you teach. But here's one thing you should do. You should tell every person you're teach that they should make a donation to a charity of their choosing, whatever amount, and they don't have to tell you which charity and what amount, but pay it forward. So when you give something of such immense value for free, down the road, people may not value it, but pay it forward. So she does that now. You've given us some wonderful practical ideas. Uh, Stephanie, do we have time to continue to talk about the, the four uh, yep. big trends that uh, Dr. Chopra, you were talking about earlier? Sure. Yep. Talk about that. Yeah. So I think the four biggest stories in medicine and biology right now are one is artificial intelligence. I don't even call it artificial intelligence. I think it's aided intelligence, augmented intelligence. I mean, just imagine one can do colonoscopy. And if it incorporates AI, you, one encounters a polyp and AI says, this is hyperplastic, leave it alone. No chance of malignancy, no need to biopsy, no need to remove, no need to have a $250 pathology fee. This is adenomatous, you gotta remove it. Or you do upper endoscopy and somebody has Barrett's epithelium, which is a precancerous lesion for cancer of the esophagus. Incorporate AI, and it will say severe dysplasia, maybe carcinoma in situ, take 18 biopsies. Or it'll say no dysplasia, no need to take biopsies. Think of a radiologist who has seen 10,000 mammograms. And then on Tuesday, Monday morning, she or he is looking at more mammograms. Maybe they're tired. Maybe they didn't sleep that well last night. Maybe they had an extra glass of wine. <laughs> We're going to make human errors. AI will not. So mammography, CAT scans, MRIs, ultrasounds, skin lesions. AI will look and say, atypical malignant melanoma. Got to excise it. Wide excision. So I think AI, and it's, 
it's being incorporated at the Beth Israel Deaconess Upper. A couple of uh, GI are doing some seminal work with endoscopy and incorporating AI. The second is microbiome, the second human genome, the 100 trillion bacteria in our gut. In aggregate, they weigh three pounds. It's been called a newly discovered organ. I give a talk as a keynote around the country, Singapore, Kuwait, called Microbiome, Man and Medicine. And I have to update that talk like every two weeks. The most recent study, malignant melanoma, right? An awful skin condition. These patients got immunotherapy, bunch responded, a bunch did not respond. 15 people had no response. They took the stool of a patient who had responded and gave it to these non-responders. Six out of the 15 converted into responders. Fecal microbiota transplant. Wow. There's a study in 18 people with autism. They got a stool transplant. Two years later, their microbiota has remained reverted. Marked improvement in GI and CNS symptoms. There's a psychiatrist in Ireland. He's coined the term psychobiome. New revolution in psychiatry. So it has implications in obesity, arthritis, liver disease, cancer. Our response to chemotherapy, our side effects to chemotherapy, dictated by our gut microbiome. Can you change oh. it without a transplant? Huh? Can you change it without a, tri a transplant? Is there a way yeah, to Yeah, that's alter? being done. Now people are studying not only these bacteria that are good and bad, but also what happens if you ingest them and what happens to gene expression. And they're coming up with companies. There's a company, disclaimer, I'm on their board. It's called Viome, started by Naveen Jain from Seattle. And what they do is they send you a kit and you give them a drop of blood, sample of your stool and saliva. They study your microbiome, they study gene expression, and then they claim, they personalize it. And they tell you, take these two probiotics, take two, these two supplements. Now the test would be, you just study the gut microbiome a month later, and all the good bacteria are thriving and the bad ones are suppressed. Whether we have come to this planet, natural birth, or C-section, it affects the microbiome. So people born by C-section are a little bit more likely to get autoimmune disorders, asthma, atopic dermatitis, Crohn's disease, lupus, rheumatoid. Not, it's, it's, it's significant, but slight increase. So there are two large-scale studies being done in our country, one in New York, one in Virginia. And what they're doing is, Kids born by C-section, taking permission from the mother, swab the vagina, the birth canal, and then rub it all over the face, skin, and in the mouth of the newborn. And preliminary studies show that a year later, these kids, their microbiome is similar to the microbiome of children born by vaginal delivery. In my slide, after I show this data, the title appears, it's called Bacterial Baptism. 
<laughs> you got to make people laugh when you're talking about amazing, stool. Yeah. Amazing how this stuff works. You know, you yeah. never imagine that the stool, it's, it's you know, it's huge. It's huge. So uh, I said to the new dean at Harvard Medical School two years ago, and I said, uh, Dr. Daly, uh, you should start a microbiome center, microbiome man and medicine at, at Harvard. You've got 17 teaching affiliates, brilliant clinicians, brilliant base. He says, Sanjay, funny you should mention it. Yesterday, I had a meeting with all the deans and department heads and I asked them, do we have enough bandwidth to start a microbiome center? And they all chimed in, yes. So anyway, microbiome, artificial intelligence. The third is CRISPR and gene editing. So this lady, Jennifer Dudna, when she was 10 years of age, she comes back from school. She was the oldest of three girls. The father doted on her, treated her more like a boy. And he puts a little book by James Watson, The Double Helix. So she reads it. Next day, she goes to school and tells her chemistry teacher, I want to learn chemistry. This is our country. And this teacher says, Jennifer, Jennifer, chemistry is not for girls. It's for boys. 2020, she got the Nobel Prize in chemistry. Gene editing, it has implications in treating cancer, sickle cell anemia, unbelievable. It's gonna be a multi-billion dollar industry. Already funding is happening. And the fourth one, so microbiome, artificial intelligence, gene editing. And by the way, there's an amazing book by Walt Isaacson, who's a professor of history. And he's written a book and it's called Breaking the Code, The Code Breaker, Jennifer Dudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. The title of the book, brilliantly written. Mm. So, and the fourth thing, believe it or not, is going to be the psychedelic revolution. So in the 50s and 60s, you know, people were experimenting with LSD, people were thrown out of Harvard, Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert. And now it's seeing a resurgence. And it's because we can do functional MRI. We can study neuroplasticity, connection between neurons. And one of the big stories is ketamine, mushrooms, other things. But ketamine, just think of this. Preliminary research, 70% of people with refractory depression, right? Between 20 and 35 years of age, Death from suicide is number one cause around the world. So people with refractory depression, you know, you put them on antidepressants, they get side effects, they don't respond. We do electroconvulsive therapy, transcranial magnetic stimulation, ketamine, ketamine. Intravenous ketamine, two or three treatments. I know the story of a young guy who was severely depressed, got three or four treatments, tells his fiancee, I've hired the skating rink between four and six tomorrow morning. Come with your video and you're going to video me as skating. So she videos him. He sends it to some talent scouts. Next thing, he's playing for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Unbelievable. And now some people have come up with a ketamine lozenge. You put under your tongue, you're monitored by a nurse, a doctor, and you can do it in your home. So... I think that's the next revolution. 
I can't believe all of the range of topics we've covered. I'm just kind of, <laughs> and, uh, it's like a four in one uh, sort of a series. Uh, but Dr. Chopra, since unfortunately that uh, our time today anyway has come to an end, yeah. what I'd love to ask you is how you connect some of these ideas back to another one of your passions, which is leadership. So maybe you can give us- Yeah, I think in, in any of these endeavors, you will people, you will see people who are leading. And uh, I was at a meeting between uh, very senior people from the business school, medical school, Kennedy School of Government, Ed School. And it was to talk about leadership. And one of the guys said, uh, and he is a very famous individual, Sanjeev, it's not possible to define leadership. You see leadership, you know it. I said, I, I respectfully disagree. Leadership is the ability to articulate a vision and walk the path such that it inspires others to rise above the banality and strife of their common day existence and achieve a higher and common goal. So we can all lead. There are many different principles of leadership. I wrote a book, Leadership by Example, and it spells out leadership, listening, empathy, attitude, dreaming big, effectiveness, being resilient, having a sense of purpose, having humility, and packing other people's parachute. But we need to lead by example, especially in healthcare. And I'll finish with a short story of Gandhi. He's sitting in his ashram, and this mother walks in with a 12-year-old son. She has walked 10 miles in the dust and heat from her village. She says, Gandhi, my son adores you. He worships you. He'll do anything for you. Look at him. He's gained so much weight. He's eating a lot of sugar. Would you please tell him not to eat sugar? So Gandhi looks at the boy and the mother and he says, come back in a week. So they go away. A week later, they again come 10 miles in the dust and heat. Gandhi looks at the boy. He says, son, don't eat sugar. It's not good for your health. And the boy says, Gandhiji, from this moment onwards, I have given up sugar. And he leaves the room. Mother stays behind. She says to Gandhiji, thank you for saying that to my son. But can I ask you a question? He says, sure. We were here a week ago. You could have said the same thing to my son then. And Gandhi whispers into her ear. At that time, I had not given up sugar. <laughs> right? You have to lead by example. Not do as I say, do as I do. So I think the best thing we can do in healthcare and reaching out to our colleagues and patients is leading by example. Well, on that note, my final question will be, what do you do personally to lead by example? What are the most important things that you feel you need to emulate to, to live that vision? Integrity. Integrity. There's a wonderful book. If you haven't read it, I'd recommend Stephanie and Apur and for the read attendees, listeners. It's called The Four Agreements. The Four Agreements We Make to Ourselves by Miguel Ruiz, based on Toltec ancient wisdom. On the cover, it's now endorsed by my brother, Deepak, but he was on Oprah twice. It was on New York Times bestseller list for two years. Sold, it's been translated into 50 languages. What are the four agreements? Number one, always be impeccable with your word, right? Number two, don't take things personally. Number three, don't be judgmental. We're all judgmental. I'm so, you know, I go to a restaurant, I see some guy come and he's 
300 pounds, he's clearly overweight. Next thing he's ordering double cheeseburger and French fries. Who am I to be judgmental? Maybe his mother died yesterday. This is comfort food or he got diagnosed with prostate cancer. And the fourth one, which also blew me away, always do your best. So I give a hundred talks. I often get, you know, storytelling and uh, getting tugging at people's heart. You know, I get standing ovations and I became a little cocky. So I would go to the AV guy and say, okay, click, 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 click. Okay, I'm all set. Hello, am I doing my best? No. And now before I give a talk, I sit down two weeks before and go through each slide meticulously for an hour. How can I improve this? Improve the font, tell a different story, tell it differently. Four agreements we make to ourselves. Very simple and yet so profound. I love that. Thank you so much for this conversation. I feel like we covered a million topics and all of them are fascinating. It could be an hour on their own. I appreciated Great. your time. Thank you. You're most welcome. Great to meet you, Stephanie. Apurv, great to see you. You're looking you. like you looked 23 years ago. Oh, thank you, Dr. Chopra. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to follow through on your advice of uh, more vitamin D and coffee yeah. and nuts. So yeah. thank Good you so time. much. Uh, really an honor. All right. Be well. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks for Bye watching. Bye-bye.